a restoration that only God can accomplish. Now, the word restore means to rebuild or to renew or to repair. So for those of us that are disciples of Jesus, we praise our God in heaven for he has restored us to a relationship with him. And so if you have repented and are trusting in Jesus alone to save you, then you are no longer far from God. You, you are close. You are reconciled to your maker and to your father who loves you so much. And so we are restored. And yet, in a very real way, living in this broken world, we continue to need more of God's restoration in our daily lives. And we've been considering these profound truths the last few weeks as we've been studying in the Old Testament books of Ezra, and today we'll look at Nehemiah, a series called Restoration, the Gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. We did complete Ezra last week, and so what we've been learning is that God has been restoring His people, and He had restored so much in their lives from being in the land and, and the temple and being focused on the Word. And yet, despite all of that restoration God had already accomplished, there was still more to be done. There was still more restoring that God had planned for his people. Can you relate to that? On this Friday morning, can you honestly relate to the idea that there is still more that God wants to accomplish in your life? Maybe you're thinking to yourself this morning, I have such a long way to go. I think that so often. And my wife reminds me, she's so gracious to, to remind me of such a long way that I have to go. And I'm, I'm sure the rest of you that are married can relate to, to the joy of being married, being reminded of how far you still have to go. Maybe, maybe you've thought to yourself, maybe even just this week, man, I'm a mess. I'm really struggling. Maybe you've just come to grips with that reality in your life. Maybe you've, you've thought, and now we're in the past, you've cried out, God, how are you ever going to fix me? When will these struggles, these temptations, when will they finally end? I have news for you, that until Christ returns or he calls us home, following him is a journey. And so we have to begin to see following Jesus as an ongoing journey. As we read in, in Hebrews 12, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Praise be to God, that we look to Jesus. He's the author, the founder, and the perfecter who will be the finisher of our faith. And we, we set aside the sin and we run this race, this journey with endurance, looking to him. And so how do we do that? How do we, practically speaking, run this race in daily life? How exactly are we to live and follow this journey of experiencing more of God's restoration, more of his freedom and sanctification in daily lives. Because it is our God. He is the one who heals. 
Our God is the one who sanctifies. He's the one that restores. He's the one that's mighty to save. And so this is the work of God. And yet, we have a role to play. What is it? Today's sermon is titled, Restoration, God's Sovereignty, Our Actions. So we're seeing how the restoration of God that we experience, He is sovereign, and yet we have actions that we must partake in. See, this is the starting place. God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God means that He is the King. That's what sovereign means. Ruler, king. God has all the authority. He's in complete control of everything. God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over every affair that happens in the affair of man. In your life, God is sovereign, including restoration. It's the sovereign work of God. God is the one who heals us and restores us. And through his spirit, he's the one that sanctifies us. And he mends our brokenness. And so we have to begin with the starting point of acknowledging, admitting gladly, humbly, joyfully that God is sovereign. And yet there's a real mystery here. There's a mystery because God calls us to play a role in our ongoing spiritual growth and our restoration. So yes, God is sovereign, and to rob God of his sovereignty is to rob God of being God. And yet, if you or I are spiritually lazy, we cannot expect God to grow us, heal us, transform us, or restore us. God is sovereign, and yet we must take action. There is a beautiful divine tension here, a tension that we must be okay with, a tension where, yes, God is sovereign, and yet we're accountable. And the Spirit of God can and He does free people from slavery to addictions. And God can free you. God can free you from your anger, from your depression. God can restore your marriage. God can give you the victory in life that you so yearn for. He can. But He won't do it without us admitting that we need him. He won't do it. Unless we bend the knee, we bow our hearts and we admit, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Unless we are broken before him and confess how desperate we need him, he won't restore us. Why? Why? Because when we acknowledge that we are desperate for him, he is glorified. And God is more concerned with his glory than our comforts. And so the reason why God chooses to restore when we submit to him is because he is more glorified in that way. And that's what God is after, is to have his glory displayed. And his glory is displayed in our lives when we confess that Jesus is Lord and that we're desperate for him. So I'm going to give you the primary truth, looking at Nehemiah 1 and 2. I'll give it to you up front, and we'll begin reading it together. The main idea, the truth here is that God's sovereign work of restoration is accomplished through the faithful actions of his people. So we're maintaining this balance here, this, this divine tension of God 
sovereign work of restoring is accomplished through the faithful actions of his people. So he is faithful to keep his promises. As we sung, he is a good, good father. And he is faithful to us. And in light of that, who we are, we are called to respond to him with faithfulness. And so today we're talking about taking action. Following Christ is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. And so let's begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 1. And here's what God's Spirit revealed. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now what happened in the months of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So these events that we just read about took place in the year 445 B.C., which was 13 years after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. If you remember that, they had returned from modern-day Iraq to Jerusalem. And so you have Nehemiah here. Now this is about, I don't know, 70 years after the, the temple had already been rebuilt. Now Nehemiah was a Jew who lived in the heart of the Persian Empire, it says in Susa which was a major city in the empire. It says in chapter 1 as well, verse 11, that he was a cupbearer to the king. So cupbearer was a very important position of great influence. Nehemiah was very influential because as a cupbearer, he had to personally ensure that the king's food and drink were not poisoned. Now, you can imagine that Nehemiah didn't want to get poisoned himself either. So it's not like he was a guinea pig. What he did is this was a very important position, again, of great influence and of great honor and leadership. See, he had to make sure that all of the staff, from bringing in the food to preparing it to serving it, that all the staff were loyal to the king. And so you can imagine there were all kinds of background checks he had to do and interviews and, and overseeing a lot. And so this is a position of great leadership. So don't think he was just tasting food. He did. He did far more than that. He was the leader who had access to the king on a daily basis. And God gave him his influence for his own glory. Now, despite how busy Nehemiah was as a cupbearer with his day job, what he was most concerned with was the people of God, the glory of God, the kingdom of God. He was concerned with what was happening in Jerusalem. And so he sent a delegation. He sent his brother and some other men to go to Jerusalem and to just check things out, see how it was going with the returned exiles. And the report that came back was not good. It says it was trouble and shame. Because the walls were not rebuilt. No city walls meant no protection from the enemy. This was a very serious problem. However, Nehemiah knew that God had promised to restore his people. 
He knew God had already promised that through Jeremiah, the prophet, that God was in the exile and that God would then bring them back because God is faithful. And so what did Nehemiah do? He took action. He took action because he already knew the promises of God. There's so much that we can learn about this man of God, Nehemiah. So we're going to see this morning some actions that we must take to then experience the restoration of God. The first one, actions that we must take that lead to God's restoration. Number one, praying. We must pray in order to experience God's restoration. No prayer, no restoration. Let's read this in verses 4 through 11, which records what Nehemiah prayed. So as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. Powerful chapter describing his prayer. See, Nehemiah knew that he needed permission from King Artaxerxes in order to go and lead the rebuilding effort of the broken down walls in Jerusalem. He knew that he couldn't go on his own. He needed permission from the king. But remember, the influence God gave him, he knew the king. He was close to the king. And so he prayed. The first action that he took was prayer. And he prays, God, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. And it says that he was cupbearer to the king. So this man is the king. Now recall about a month ago, we were looking at Ezra chapter 4. And in it, it described what happened in the future, which is right here in this context. You remember that King Artaxerxes had commanded, in this case years earlier, that the walls not be rebuilt. So the king had already passed a law saying, no, Jerusalem, you are not allowed to rebuild the wall. And so now Nehemiah is praying because he wants to go and ask the king for permission to rebuild the wall. But if he does that, he's going against the law. He has to ask the king to change the decree. 
it could be seen as treason. And even though the, the king respected Nehemiah, no king liked being questioned. So Nehemiah knew that this was a big deal. And yet he knew that God gave him the influence for a time such as that, and that he was going to use it for God's glory. And so what does he do? He prays. Because he knows that God is greater. And so we sing it, God is greater, but do we truly believe that he is greater? Do we really believe that? Prayer proves that we truly are submitting to the sovereignty of God, that there is God and we're not him, and that we're trusting him. And so he prays. And how does he begin praying? He begins praying by praising, by, by adoring God. He says, great and awesome are you, God. And he says, you keep your covenant love, and your steadfast love. And, and so he's praising God. So he doesn't begin by asking for anything. He begins by simply adoring and worshiping God. And then after he, he adores God, he confesses his sin before God. He says, we have sinned. I have sinned. My family have sinned. We're guilty before you. He's admitting. He's confessing his sin. And then finally, at the end of his prayer, he asks. He petitions. His supplications come out. And, and he asks for success. And he says, God, help me. We need your mercy. We don't deserve it. But we need you. Please work in the heart of the king. But remember why? For the glory of God. Because he says, this is your people. You've redeemed them with great power and a strong hand. And so what he wants is God's glory to be revealed. He doesn't want the walls for the wall's sake. It's for the glory of God. And you see this now, chapter 2. Let's begin reading and what happens in the this, in this story. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Understatement. Verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lie in ruins, its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Very direct. I love this. Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He prayed. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. This is amazing. He's very afraid. And yet he still makes the request. He tells the king what is on his heart. He had spent four months, though, in prayer. Because it says here now it was, it was in, in the month of Nisan, which was four months where he had begun praying in chapter 1. And so this was not a casual thing. This was daily begging God, praying. It says in fasting, humbling himself. And in God's presence. And even before he answers the king, he prayed. He was so experiencing God's presence. He was so connected with God that he was just talking to God all the time. He was in constant conversation with God. And so here he is. He has the king saying, well, what do you want? He's very direct. He's a king. That's what he's used to. He says, what do you want? And he prays before he says a word. He's like, okay, God, help me. You know these 911 prayers that we do? 
They're not terrible. But it shouldn't be just that. He spent four months in serious prayer. And then he also has this prayer in the moment saying, God, help me. Give me wisdom. And then he tells the king. See, prayer is the first and most important action that we must take. We sometimes think that prayer is not an action. Like we'll think prayer is a passive thing. Prayer is not taking action. Action is doing something. No, that's not true. Prayer is the first action that we must take. I hear people say all the time, and it frustrates me. I actually hate it. But we say, oh, there is nothing else that we can do. All we can do now is just pray. Ever heard that phrase? It's not in the Bible. The first thing that we do is pray. Not say, oh, there's no other resort. Now we have to pray. No, our first resort, the first thing we do is pray. And that is action. There is power in prayer. But what exactly is prayer? Prayer is conversation and encounter with God. That's what it is. It's, it's conversation, but also encounter with God. Prayer is a personal encounter with the living God. We, we commune with God through prayer. Prayer is a two-way conversation where we speak to God and, and we listen to him. Prayer is designed to be a, a quiet, focused time of, of truly experiencing the presence of God. See, knowing God is not simply intellectual. It's not. Knowing God has to be an emotional relationship. God has emotion. He's made us with emotion. Emotion is good. It's a good thing that we have emotions. Now, our emotions, like the rest of us, has to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so all of us has to be redeemed, including our emotions. But emotions are good. In heaven, you're going to have emotions they're going to be holy and glorified, but you're still going to have emotions. To be human is said to feel. God has emotions. So do we. And we need to connect with God, including on a spiritual, intellectual, and emotional level. When we pray, we're, we're asking God to accomplish his purposes. So when we pray, we're saying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying, God, your kingdom come. God, have more people submit to your kingship. And so we're praying for God's will done in our lives and the lives of our church and the lives of our community and our city. So we're praying for God's kingdom. So we're praying for his will to be done. But we can't separate asking for things for his glory from simply enjoying him. It's both. Prayer is petitioning God, absolutely. But it's also enjoying his presence, like King David in Psalm 63, who prays, oh God, my soul thirsts for you. Some people emphasize, no, prayer is not emotional. Prayer is, prayer is just asking God for his kingdom come. And that's true, but it's not just that. And others will emphasize, no, 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 prayer is just this contemplative thing. And it is, but it's also not just that. It's, it's both. It's your kingdom come. You will be done as we simply enjoy his presence. Prayer is a journey. It's a journey from duty to delight. That's what prayer is. You see, prayer 
begins with duty oftentimes. If we're honest, I mean, I'll be honest with you, prayer can be a struggle. It can. Because we tend to think that, that praying doesn't change anything. Or we, we think that praying is not taking action. And so sometimes we struggle. We struggle to ask God for his help because we don't want to admit that we need his help. It can be a struggle because we don't want to admit that we really are messed up and that we need him to really heal and to transform us. We don't want to admit that because we got this. Prayer can be a struggle because we sometimes value our idols more than time in God's presence for many reasons. But what happens is if we begin praying, even if it begins as duty because we know that we're supposed to, the more that we do it, we're going to experience God's presence. And what will happen is you'll journey to delight like we read in Nehemiah 1 in his prayer. He's saying, for those who delight in you and to fear you, to worship you. Prayer is an expression of worship. It's part of how we worship, how we value God as we pray. Beyond duty to delight. And so what you're seeing here, the way that Nehemiah prayed, is the same way that Jesus prayed when he gave us the model to pray. The Lord's Prayer is not something that is designed to be repeated per se. It's an example of, of how we should pray. And so we begin with adoration, adoring him. Like you see here with Nehemiah adoring God. Like Jesus, he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so Jesus began modeling prayer for us with adoring him. Second, we confess. Jesus did that. He says, forgive us our, our debts. So Jesus confessed, like you see with Nehemiah. He was confessing their sins. But then we also have to thank God. Adoration, confession, but also thanks. Saying, God, thank you that I'm in your kingdom. Thank you that you have saved me. And then our supplications, our petitions. And then we say, God, I need you. Help me. Give me wisdom. Change me. Heal me. Uh, Whatever the situation is, like here, change the king's heart. So then we ask, but A-C-T-S, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Way to remember, this is how Jesus revealed that we should pray. It's important. Focus prayer time will help you to experience the presence of God throughout your day. You'll find yourself in constant conversation as you're encountering Christ. And just like Nehemiah, you will find yourself praying before you speak, praying and asking God throughout the day silently and experiencing and knowing that he is there with you. So God uses our prayer to change our hearts and our desires so that we want, we desire the things that he commands. So do you pray? What do you pray for? That gives you an indication of what you value most. And worship is valuing God. So the first action that we must take to experience restoration is prayer. Second one. Second action is trust. We need to be truly trusting in our God. So Nehemiah was trusting God's promises because he prayed, reminding God, hey, he says, you already promised that I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God, you already promised to restore. So based upon your promises, I'm going to trust you. Let's read what happens, verses 6 through 8, still in chapter 
too. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to to me, the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And, And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Amen. The king says, yes. He says, yes, you can go. But what's amazing is when the king says, yes, Nehemiah already gives him the plan. He already had it all planned out. So Nehemiah clearly already believed he was already trusting that God was going to say yes. He already knew God made the promise. He's going to restore. And so with confidence, with fear, and yet trusting God, he can go to the king, and the king says, yes, okay, great, here's what I need. And he already starts giving him all the plans. Why? Because he was trusting God. And just like Ezra, the good hand of God was upon him. He was following God, and God's blessings were upon him. Do you honestly trust God? Now, we're all going to say yes. If I say show your hands, we're all going to raise them. Yes, we all trust God. But do you struggle with anxiety? Do you struggle with fear? What about insecurity? All of those struggles are evidence that you trust God a little bit less. Maybe you think you do. These are symptoms that allow us to, it's like a window into our soul to see where our hope and our trust really lies. And just like in Nehemiah, he was trusting in his God's promises. He was resting in God and honestly resting in Christ. Resting in him will lead you to restoration. For a lot of people, Christianity is a religion. They have adopted Christianity because of where they're from, because of their family, or for whatever reason, or because they believe in in the body of knowledge that is Christianity. And they, they mentally agree with the tenets of the Christian faith or religion. But following Jesus is not mentally agreeing with the facts of the Bible. Christianity is not just a religion that you convert to. It's loving a person. It's knowing Jesus. It's having a relationship that you're focused on, a person who loves you, who saved you, and you have union with the living Christ through his spirit in you, and you know him, and you enjoy him, and you desire to please him because he's changed your life. And so if you're here and all you have is religion, I encourage you with all of your heart to really entrust your soul in eternity to your maker, to Jesus. Are you pretending today? We have the religion, but if you're honest, you're a pretender. You don't actually know and enjoy Jesus. You don't actually know him. He died for you. 
He loves you. If you will repent of your sins, turn away, and with all your heart, trust in him. His spirit will come live in you, and he'll change you, and you'll begin to have freedom from this anxiety and fear or whatever is gripping your soul. Trust is the next step, the next action for restoration. Number three, the next action that we see here is planning. Planning. You could say preparation because they're very closely linked here. And so planning. Remember, Nehemiah knew exactly what he needed, which is evidence that his praying was influencing his planning. And so we see this further in the next section, still in chapter 2, beginning with verse 9, where we just left off. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat and Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. Then I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went out to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So despite this initial opposition, we'll see that more next week, fierce opposition. Despite the opposition here, you see Nehemiah planning. He was preparing to serve his God. He goes and he's inspecting very carefully with great detail, inspecting the rubble and the gates and the wall. And, and he's just, he's making sure he understands what needs to be done. I can already picture him out there with his iPhone taking pictures and, and just making sure that he, he has a good feeling of what's going on with the gates. He was, he was planning. See, Nehemiah prayed first. And then that prayer led him to really trust his God, which gave him the hope and the courage to plan, to prepare. And so prayer and planning go hand in hand. And so we enjoy our God in our devotional times, but then we have his presence throughout the day. And then that leads us to want to really plan and prepare for what God has for us. See, preparation is a big part of, of following Jesus. There's different seasons in life. And so some of you in the room here, you're in a season of singleness. So you're not married. And some of you are happy that you're not married, but others of you maybe wish that you were married. This is a season of preparation, of intentionally preparing yourself for the day where God's going to bring you your husband or your wife. Don't squander it. Serve Christ being single. Enjoy this season, but see it as a preparation for the next one. Some of you are married, but you don't have children yet. Don't squander that season. Serve. Learn. Prepare. 
read books on parenting so that you're ready, so that when that next season of parenting comes, then you're prepared for it. Some of you have kids, and they're approaching leaving the home. You're going to be empty nesters pretty soon. It's going to be a new season. You need to be preparing and, and think what that's going to look like. I'm just saying there's lots of examples, and you apply it in your life. But the point is that there are different seasons, and sometimes we're, we don't see, we don't realize that it's a preparation time. It's a, a time for planning. Are you? See, I'll give you one example. In my life, shepherding a church takes a lot of planning. It, things don't happen in our church just randomly. I can assure you it takes a lot of thought and prayer and preparation. But if you're a father or a mother, you have to shepherd your children, your family. And that should take planning. Are you thinking about how am I going to lead my children? What am I going to teach my children? If you're a haphazard, it won't happen. You have to be intentional. You need to plan. What about in your devotional time? Do you, do you plan what book Bible you, you're going to be studying? Or, or are you all just kind of flipping, okay, I'm going to just kind of open it and read here. Okay, I'm not saying that's wrong or evil. It's okay. God can still work through that. I've done it. Not regularly. It's not, it's not my practice. It's much better to plan. It's better to think ahead. So, okay, for this month, I'm going to be studying Proverbs. For this month, I'm going to be studying this book. Or I'm going to read this devotional book in conjunction with it. And plan. Plan your, your devotional time. Planning is honoring to God. Preparing yourself is an act of worship. You know, it's been said, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. And so laziness, so spiritual laziness, lack of planning will not help you. And so spiritual planning leads to more of God's restoration. Number four, as we wrap things up and move into communion, the fourth action that we take that leads to restoration is doing, doing. Just do something. See, Nehemiah prayed first. This is where it starts. First action is we pray before God earnestly. And then secondly, we trust him. And then that leads us into really planning and preparing. And then that leads to actually moving forward and taking steps of action in faith. Let's finish Nehemiah chapter 2. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Hornonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, Servants and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. And, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. I love it. Step off. Our God is God. I don't have to respond to you. He's called us. And we're going to do this for the glory of God. We're going to build. Keep building. Don't let the enemy get you down. 
you keep building in your life, you keep doing what God has called you to do. Over the next few weeks, we're going to keep walking with Nehemiah, and we'll see the things that he did and what God called him and the Israelites to do. Some of you in the room, you're paralyzed, and you need to hear, let's build, let us rise up and build and strengthen your hands for the good work. God has good work for you to do. You need to have your hands strengthened. You need to rise up and say, let's get to work for the glory of God. Some of you, I'm serious, you, you need to stop being paralyzed with wondering, what if it just do something for God? What motivated Nehemiah? He was motivated, this is by God's name. God's name was at stake. He was compelled to act for the glory of God to remove the shame of having the holy city still in ruins. So what motivates you in your life? What gets you up on a Sunday morning? You see, today, God's name is still at stake. Now, his name isn't at stake with city walls and burned down gates. No. But God's name is at stake in the lives of his people. See, we represent God to this world and to this amazing city, Abu Dhabi. That's why Jesus says that we need to pray. He said, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, there's a mission to accomplish. There are boys and girls and men and women that are far from God. And they need to hear the good news that Jesus died on the cross for them. And we need to tell them. But to see, the key to accomplishing the mission, he says, is pray. Prayer is the key to accomplishing this mission of glorifying God by making and developing disciples. See, Nehemiah is a great leader. And if, and if you Google Nehemiah leadership book, you're going to get, I don't even know how many books written about Nehemiah as a leader. And a lot of people say Nehemiah only has a leadership manual, but it's more than that. Nehemiah points to the gospel. Nehemiah points to Jesus. He is. Yes, Nehemiah accomplished great things for God. And Nehemiah led them to experience God's restoration. But he points to the gospel and to Jesus, where Jesus is the final, better Nehemiah. Jesus is the ultimate leader who restores, not broken walls, but he restores our broken lives. That's who we serve. That's who we worship, our Savior Jesus. May we do so as to take action for his glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we are truly humbled, grateful, and even overwhelmed this morning that we could have the joy of singing your praises and reading your word and hearing your truth. I pray that we would be gripped by it that we would be conformed to your son's image by it, that we would not be passive, but that we would be active in really praying and trusting you and planning and doing those things you've called us to do. May we be a church that's active, accomplishing your mission for your namesake. And we pray in the name of our love, Jesus.